from Kirkco Media. Coming up on the show. Ask yourself, why did Trump do better than people expected? The big stimulus that put money in people's pockets, the checks that had Donald Trump's name on them, the fact that Democrats actually increased the amounts that went out there, I think had some effect in helping Trump because people were doing better than they would have been if this program wasn't passed. Democrats can say, and maybe they should have said more in the election, wait a minute, a lot of this was our ideas, but he's president. He put his name on those checks, and that was kind of outrageous, but some voters associated that with him. Well, our democracy has been tested. It was a marathon. It may not have looked pretty to you, but it was pretty. A finish is a finish. Welcome again to Politics Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. We're here again with my co-host, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, author, worldwide lecturer, and a compendium of history and perspective on our political realities, Pepperdine professor Ed Larson. Ed, how you doing? Hello, Bill. Nice to see you again. And of course, our dynamic co-host, Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who has represented U.S. interests to high-level government officials in Washington. Europe, Russia, and then some. She's got a solid, sometimes surprising, meet-me-in-the-middle perspective that we're once again honored to have in our studio. Jane, thanks for Zooming in today. Always a pleasure to be here, Bill. And revisiting us, our special guest, E.J. Dion, one of our favorite guests hailing from Washington, D.C. He's that infamous columnist from the Washington Post you've all seen, you all read. He's a Harvard grad, a senior fellow at Brookings Institute, a professor in Georgetown, a visiting professor at Harvard, and he's the co-author of New York Times bestseller, One Nation After Trump. He's the author of Why the Right Went Wrong. And last time he visited us in early March, it was the week before the COVID poop really hit the fan, and he had just published his lauded book, Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. Now it's clear, his research and his writings are more pertinent now as we approach the inauguration of our new centrist president. We're so pleased to have you back with us today, EJ. It's great to be with you and great to be with Ed and Jane as well. So eight months ago, a smart guy was on our show and he was asked to predict the possibility of Biden or Sanders winning the presidency over the incumbent. Can I play that smart guest back to you, please? So, EJ, we're going to make you read the tea leaves one last time. If Biden is the candidate... What is the percentage chance of replacing Trump in the White House? I'd say 70 at least. I'm, I'm on the high side of voters wanting to replace Trump. My basic view is that a majority of Americans, including enough of them in the swing states, want to replace Donald Trump. The Democratic Party's job is to make it as easy as possible for them to make that choice. That really was the argument that Joe Biden has made in the last week. So you've given a 70 percent chance to Biden to replace the guy in the White House. And so if Sanders is the candidate, what is the percentage chance that he'll replace Trump in the White House? I go down. I go down about 50 50 with Sanders. Nice crystal ball there, EJ. Sounds like either they listened to you or at least that crystal ball was firing on all cylinders. Now that we're here, let's test it again a little bit, because as we talk about the idea of progressives and moderates working together, does the Democratic Party realize the mixed message that voters sent in this election? 
I am moderately bullish on the Democratic Party's ability not to spend all their time punching each other in the face. Basically, I think there is a tension within the Democratic coalition because the Democrats are a very big tent party right now. As the Republican Party has moved rightward, it has spun off a lot of people who in another time might well have been moderate or even they existed once upon a time a liberal are Republicans. Those folks are basically have been driven out of the Republican Party, have lost primaries or have been defeated in elections. And so a lot of the big arguments about the future tend to take place inside the Democratic Party. Therefore, you have had people uh, such as AOC on the one side, Abigail Spanberger, the congresswoman from outside of Richmond, Virginia, on the other side, sort of arguing about why didn't the Democrats win more seats in the House and all that. But I think faced with the need to govern and with Joe Biden in the White House, I think there's a realization that the Democrats are going to be tested first and foremost by whether the pandemic disappears eventually and the economy comes back and by their ability to enact at least parts of their program. Let me bring Jane and Ed into this. Certainly, the election said no to Trump. Did it also say no to progressives in the way the votes came down? The down party votes certainly went more conservative. I don't know if it said no to progressives. What I found in the Democrats that won in 2018 was that the reasons their ideas won was because they solved problems for their electorate without talking philosophy. And the progressive solutions actually appealed to them. What I do think happened is that the scare tactics that the Republicans used at their convention and beyond to scare, in particular, white suburban Democrats worked in the down ticket races more than in the presidential races. When you look over the results, it wasn't really the progressives that lost. And they did certainly lose House seats. They lost those swing seats that they had won two years before. As a result of that, since those were the ones that lost, not the progressives, what you saw is an eating away at that big tent that Trump did manage to turn out more votes. Trump's got more votes this time than he did four years ago. It was just that Biden won over a lot of those moderates. I think what happened down ballot is explained as much by structural factors as by anything having to do with ideology. I agree some of the scare campaigns around socialism and around defund the police had some effect in some districts. But really what you saw is that in 2018, the Democrats had extraordinary turnout in a way that the Republicans didn't that Democratic candidates for the House in 2018 got 25 million more votes than Democratic candidates for the House had gotten four years earlier in the previous midterms. Republicans only got 10 million more votes. So what you had were Democrats winning deep into Republican territory, including a lot of Trump districts. Most of their losses in the House came not in formerly Clinton districts, they came in Trump districts. And indeed, where they saved themselves were in districts that Biden flipped from Clinton to himself between 2016 and 2018. So a lot of it was just Republicans reclaiming territory. The election that I would compare it to is what happened in 1960 when John F. Kennedy got elected president 
The Republicans gained back almost two dozen seats in the House, even as Richard Nixon was very, very narrowly losing the presidency. Why is that? Because the Democrats won a landslide in 1958. So I think the landslide elections are often followed by losses, even when your party wins a big presidential victory. So this new administration has a number of flanks that it's going to have to watch, clearly, starting with the flank versus a potentially Republican Senate. We'll talk about that in a minute. But EJ, you've certainly led the thinking about progressives and moderates and how they need to get it together. Back in our last show, I was grilling you about, and you seem to enjoy the idea that we're showing that you actually have thought things through before you said them. During the primaries, when the landscape was about a progressive and a moderate versus an incumbent. Let's roll this tape. So, EJ, here we are. We're left in a race between three old men, Biden, Sanders and Trump, with ideologies that couldn't be farther apart and seemingly lack all bridges. You've talked about your position of having moderates and progressive work together. So how do you see that playing out in this case? Well, I think of the three, uh, Biden is the one who most consciously talks all the time about building bridges. Indeed, he gets grief sometime for saying uh, he can work with the current Republican Party in Congress, which uh, many people have doubts about. I have some doubts about it myself, and I believe in principle in building bridges. EJ, once again, you called it properly. But let's talk about your doubts about building those bridges, especially now with the possibility of a Republican Senate. How will the Biden team work to bridge to the Republicans if necessary? I think that there was a time when there were a significant number of Republicans willing to work with Democrats. I think, for example, of the way in which Orrin Hatch could work with Ted Kennedy to create the children's health care program which was a big step forward in healthcare before Obamacare. Again, Hatch and Kennedy worked together in building a big national service program. And George W. Bush actually negotiated with Democrats on his No Child Left Behind program. I think what the Republicans have shown since Obama's election in 2008 is that they are not ready to work with a Democratic president. And Joe Biden will need look no farther than his experience with Obama, where there was very, very little cooperation and a whole lot of obstruction. And since the election, the number of Republican leaders who were willing to say the simple thing, Joe Biden won this election, which is true, which is fact, the fact that so few Republicans Republicans were willing to get in front of Trump and say what Trump is saying is outrageous. That's a real message to Biden. I see two potential things happening here. As we speak, Senators Collins and Romney have joined with a couple of moderate Democrats. I think it's Mark Warner and Joe Manchin to propose somewhat larger economic rescue and stimulus bills, something over $900 billion. I think one possibility if the Republicans win one of those runoffs and take the Senate majority is that people like Romney Collins, Murkowski, they probably can't go much farther down the list might be willing on certain issues to work a little bit with Biden. Interesting. Hey, Ed, you're a resident historian. EJ brought up the Kennedy administration. That was one of those administrations where President Kennedy had a bunch of flanks to watch, not only from the opposing party at that time, but even in his own. Can you talk a little bit about how that was accomplished or not? With the current situation, I generally agree with EJ that I don't see the Republicans having any incentive, 
even those few to working with Biden and the present administration. And even those few won't have much of an opportunity to do so because the Senate leadership can control what comes up to the floor. So they won't get a chance to work with him on many issues. The Republicans have very little gain to having success. The only exception to that will be they'll probably feel a responsibility to approve or at least vote on their cabinet members and other non-judicial appointments. And with those, people like Romney and Susan Collins will probably be key to getting them enough votes to go through. But if you go much beyond that, even judicial nominations I think Biden is in danger of facing a brick wall. Interesting. So if you have two kids, sometimes you go to the older kid and say, would you please apologize to your brother or sister, even though it wasn't your fault, because it'll set a tone for getting along better and having a peaceful dinner, whatever your goal might be. So let's talk about the kids in our pending government. You think it's possible that we could go to the adult in the room, Biden, and say, could you give some credit? Nobody is suggesting that Trump handled the pandemic well, but could you give some credit to the Trump administration for getting us to the point where we have a vaccine and putting us at least on the path to the right place? I think Biden's quite capable of that. And some of that might happen, but I don't think it solves the problem of the parties working together. It just sets a tone. It may set a tone, but the dynamics that EJ talked about, which I agree with, are there and they will not be changed. Yeah, I totally agree with Jane. I think what Biden is likely to do is to make very open efforts to invite Republicans to the White House, to talk to them all the time, to say, I want to work together. Not necessarily because that's going to get him to where he needs to go, but at least it will save him the signal where he'll be able to say when he has to do things on his own or when he needs to get tough and testy, he's going to be able to say, I did everything in my power to try to get these folks to work with me. I said that before the election. I said I didn't want to run a highly partisan administration. But if I have a choice between just folding my tent and getting nothing done or getting tougher, I'll get tougher. EJ, can I ask you a quick question? Are there really people who truly believe not just positioning for their own effort, but they really believe that this election was fraudulent? Do they really believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump? I don't believe that any member of the Senate or the House outside of a very tiny fringe of people believe any of that, which makes it worse because they're not willing to say what everyone knows, which is this was a free and fair election that Biden won. He won sizably in the popular vote, and he won by margins in some of those states that were significantly bigger than Trump's. What I do worry most about is this notion of crying voter fraud is a Republican notion that predates Trump. And they've used these claims of voter fraud to pass all kinds of laws to restrict access to the ballot, to make it harder for people, particularly African-Americans and younger people, people to vote. And that's a problem. And that's the consistency between what Trump is doing and what the pre-Trump party did before. 
I totally agree. You know, we're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, EJ, we're going to want to talk to you about more specifics on the progressives and the moderates and how they might play a role in this administration. We'll be back in 30 seconds. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Well, we're back with EJ Dion, and EJ, clearly, it's going to be a challenge for Biden's administration to bridge their Republican counterparts. But while they're doing that, they need to watch their flanks with the progressives like, you know, AOC and Bernie Sanders. And let's dig into this administration a bit and its challenges on that front. What are some similarities and what are the major differences in how the progressives and the moderates want to approach this particular presidency? Well, as you were kind enough to note early this year, I wrote a book called Code Red, where I argued that there were ways in which progressives and moderates could get along because broadly speaking, they wanted to move in the same direction, even if not necessarily at the same speed or in exactly the same way. The classic example being Bernie Sanders folks are really for single payer. Biden is for covering everybody through a public option and a continuation of Obamacare. But the fact is they were all for moving forward and covering everybody with decent health insurance. I think what you've seen so far with the appointments, which is the only clear evidence we have so far, Biden's done a pretty good job of threading the needle between these wings. I think the choice, for example, of Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary is a really good example of picking somebody whom progressives are very comfortable with, because going back, way back to 2006, she was talking about how globalization and technological change were driving down wages, something that Bernie might say, but it was just a simple economic fact. But she's also somebody very trusted by mainstream folks, business folks, look at how she ran the Fed and thought she was very responsible there. That's a good example. He's given progressives some key appointments, for example, Heather Boucher and Jared Bernstein on the Council of Economic Advisors are very progressive. It says to progressives, you're going to have an influence here. I've got some friends that like the idea of further stimulus. They want people to have better jobs. They're actually okay with rising minimum wage. They like the idea of some method of giving health care to the broadest number of people possible, but they're afraid of taxes. And Biden's desire or stated plan to bring greater taxes to anybody making over $400,000 a year is something that scares a lot of people who may or may not be in that category. They just hope to be in that category one day and make that kind of money. So let me ask you a question. How do people like Janet Yellen plan to attack that particular problem where there's a group of people who like the idea of helping but don't like the idea of rich people starts at $400,000 worth of income, even if they live in a place like L.A., San Francisco, or New York. First of all, we're not going to confront the tax issue for a while because we're in the middle of a downturn in a pandemic. And so what I worry more about are Republicans who suddenly don their deficit hawk costumes 
having been perfectly willing to drive up the debt by passing their own big corporate tax cuts. So I think you're going to hear a lot of that from them. I don't think Biden's tax proposals, first of all, they are unlikely to go through if the Republicans take the Senate. Secondly, they are unlikely to go through in exactly the form he proposed, even if the Democrats have a 50-50 margin. And the tax issue isn't going to come up till later. But if you look at the polling, raising taxes on people earning over $400,000 a year is quite popular. Why? Because the vast majority of Americans earn less than $400,000 a year and that not all of his taxes are on income. He's talking about clawing back some of the corporate tax where the Republicans cut it lower than the corporations themselves had asked for or expected at the time. But I think we're going to be in deficit spending for some time until we get out of this downturn. And deficit spending is actually what an economy needs when it's in a situation like it's in right now. So, AJ, let's talk a little bit about some differences and similarities between the progressive Democrats and the moderates. Is there a difference or is there agreement on how to deal with COVID-19? Broadly, I think if you looked at the packages that passed through Congress, I would say people agreed on. 80%. Some progressives, Pramila Jayapal, head of the Progressive Caucus in the House, wanted us to go to a system that many European countries had gone to with total support of wages for a while. It actually wasn't a bad idea. It's worked pretty well in Europe, but we're not going to do that at this stage. And that for the most part, I think the disputes, if there are any going forward, will be whether a compromise agreement is big enough to solve some of the problems. When you look at what Romney and Collins and Manchin and Mark Warner put together, I think there'll be two pieces of pushback. One is 900 billion is a heck of a lot of money, but it may not be enough for what we need. And then the second is this, let's give people the the usual Republican thing of let's get rid of lawsuits, uh, let's protect employers if their workers get sick without necessarily putting clear requirements on them from OSHA. OSHA has been very weak under Trump on health conditions at plants. So a lot of Democrats still will look at this and say, my God, we got to get something through somehow or else the economy is in really big trouble. We do need money out there. One would think that they're all going to look at that and say we have to at least pass something and then we can argue with whatever the next phase of the stimulus might be. Well, I think that you're going to get something because on the one hand, the average person on the street who has lost their job desperately needs it. And people in the investment world and business world know you need it because you have to try to prevent the depth of the economy going too low. In other words, if you're going to have a recovery, it's much harder to come from the bottom of a V than it is to come from a shallow U. And what the stimulus packages can do is prevent that economy from dipping so badly down that when things do get better, it's harder and longer to recover. It cost us $3 trillion to get arguably an eight-week window when the pandemic started. And I realized that some of that was spent badly. But even when they turned that into a 24-week period, we're sitting here with nine months before we really inoculated the largest number of Americans. And clearly, anyone who looks at it critically is going to realize we need stimulus to get us from here to there. Could I just take us all the way back to where we started? Ask yourself, why did Trump do better than people expected? The big stimulus that put money in people's pockets, the checks that had Donald Trump's name on them, the fact that Democrats actually increased the amounts that went out there 
I think had some effect in helping Trump get reelected because people were doing better than they would have been if this program wasn't passed. Democrats can say, and maybe they should have said more in the election, wait a minute, a lot of this was our ideas, but he's president. He put his name on those checks, and that was kind of outrageous, but some voters associated that with him. Let's talk about some other aspects where progressives and moderates are going to need to get together. Jane, you're kind of aware of what's going on in China and Russia. How do you see progressives and moderates differing and then finding common ground on how America should proceed in putting those challenges in the best light? That's a much deeper, more complicated question than you may think. In terms of China, it's going to be the trade deals. And I think in the trade deals, what progressives will be looking for is somewhat more protections for labor than have been in some prior deals and somewhat poorer protections for the environment. On Russia, I don't know that there's a huge chasm between progressives and moderates. No, I agree with that. I think on Russia, there's a small minority who worries about a new Cold War, but that's a real minority even within the progressive community. I think You know, the reality of his dictatorship and the way he interfered in our politics affected everybody on the Democratic side, including progressives. China is complicated only in this way, I think, that everybody is almost everybody is more hawkish toward China than they were five years ago, partly in response to what Xi has done with that regime. Xi has become more authoritarian. All these hopes that, well, China gets a market and it'll become more democratic. Well, no, it's gone the other way. And Trump was not the only person to see this. And I'm not sure there will be as sharp a break between Trump and Biden on China as some people might expect, although I think Biden will do it somewhat more rationally and diplomatically and with help from allies, which I think is going to be a key part of it. Ed. How about progressives versus the moderates in how we're dealing with troops in Afghanistan and the Iran deal or no deal? How are they looking at it differently? I mean, the problem will come of how much of Biden's neocon past will interact with progressives who, in large part, agreed with Trump's notion against foreign involvement. I mean, Trump, he's the last president probably since Jimmy Carter to not get us involved in a foreign war. And the progressives tend to agree on that position and they view this intervention around the world, most of them, and I I don't know if everyone would agree, but they tend to view that skeptically. They like to engage, say, South Africa on apartheid, and that'll be a tension for Biden because how does he now, with the greatly reduced numbers of troops in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria, for that matter, he will be hard pressed. Progressives will question him about raising those numbers back up. You're absolutely right. I think if Biden is smart, He will not get us involved in wars. I think Trump's done him a favor. I think most Americans, progressives and otherwise, were really tired of 20 plus years of war. And it's expensive. If you talk about recovering budget wise, it is expensive to conduct all those wars. So if I were Biden, and I think Biden's foreign policy team is going to be pretty capable They'll take advantage of the fact that we're almost out of there and not going to be getting us back in there. So how do you guys feel that progressives versus moderates want to handle Iran and North Korea? You know, on Iran, Biden is committed to going back into the Iran nuclear deal that President Obama negotiated. That gets very complicated with the killing of this Iranian nuclear scientist. You know, so I still think that is his objective. 
I don't know if this killing was designed to actually make it harder for Biden to do what he wants to do. There's suspicion out there. There's no proof of anything like that, but it's not unreasonable. I think on that, there is real concord across pretty much all the Democratic Party, except for a very small number of people who in the Democratic Party, I think there were two or three votes against it. Well, the killing of the Iranian scientist is just the final link that happened. Really, Trump has changed the whole groundwork in the Middle East with the new relationships between Israel. By dividing the Arab world with Iran and U.S. sort of pulling back, so many of these Arab countries have now either established diplomatic relationships with Israel or, in the case of Saudi Arabia, are sort of working very much more closely together. And that creates a whole different landscape. This is one thing where the Trump administration, the Trump activities in the Middle East have actually made a lasting change, just as the dealings with China have made a lasting change. And Biden now has to walk into a very different world than he left. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, the lightning round of cabinet picks. We'll be back in 30 seconds. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being You're questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones beauty that are of free. rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. Okay, we're back with EJ Dion. Okay, EJ, we're going to play a little game. First, I'm going to mention one of the Biden team's picks for cabinets and otherwise, and I'm going to ask you to do a few things with each pick. One is label, if you're willing to, between one being moderate and 10 being progressive. And secondly, I'm going to ask you for a sentence describing each one of these picks. So let's start with Mr. Blinken for Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. I'd say a five. He's right in the middle of the Democratic Party consensus. I've actually known him for about 35 or 40 years. I met him actually when he was a kid, when I was working in Paris as a correspondent. He's a lovely guy, very agreeable, very smart. And I would put him right in the middle of the party. Easy confirmation or not? I think so. Yes. Okay. How about Linda Thomas-Greenfield, UN ambassador? I tell you why I really, really like that choice, uh, besides the fact that she talks about gumbo diplomacy, which I love when she wants to sort of deal with people. She she's from Louisiana. She invites them over to help her cook gumbo. But I also like her because of her experience in Africa. China is really I don't know if eating our lunches, eating our gumbo is quite the right metaphor, but they are really getting a great lead on our country and influence in Africa. We need to get in that game. And I think sending her to the UN is a really good sign in that respect. So, Jane, let me bring you into the game then. John Kerry, special envoy for climate. I think it was a good idea for him to appoint Kerry for this 
purpose. I think it satisfies progressive needs. But Carrie is not all that progressive historically. So Avril Haines, director of national intelligence. EJ? She just seems, again, somebody who is deeply professional. And it's very cool to have a woman in that job. And she's a career person. Again, if you are a kind of Trumpist who views all of Washington as suspect, then you are suspicious of anyone with deep experience of the sort she has. If you are a traditional kind of conservative who values, who understands that experience in government actually matters, I see no real problem from a philosophical point of view for people on the right, but I don't see any pushback from progressives either. I think it's, again, she's a pro. Interesting. How about Jake Sullivan, national security advisor? Politico had a great piece on him where it's really hard to find anybody who dislikes Jake Sullivan. And I share that view. I've had dealings with him over the years. He's incredibly smart. What I like in particular about him is I wrote a column recently where I argued that one of the things liberal internationalists have to understand is that the rise of support for Trumpian nationalism comes from the fact that a lot of people on main streets around the country and shop floors around the country don't think that the diplomatic elite thinks at all about them or their interests or their economic interests when they make foreign policy choices. What I like about Jake Sullivan is he's thought a lot about regional economic inequalities in the United States, about what we need to do domestically. So I think he's going to bring some of those insights in analyzing foreign policy and also explaining it to Americans. So I'm very high on on him, and he's an extraordinarily successful guy at a very young age. So the most talked about appointment certainly is Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary nominee. Can you tell us a little about her and where she lands in the moderate versus progressive ranking? Seven, six, seven, somewhere six, maybe not eight, but six or seven. I think it's very significant that Elizabeth Warren, who wanted that job, was very happy with Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen is not an ideologue, is the first thing that needs to be said. She's a very data-driven person, which means the arguments she makes are arguments that even people who disagree with her have to take seriously. But she is someone who sees the purpose of economic policy as more than just making sure that corporations are in good shape or more even than we just have GDP growth. Uh, She's the one I think, and again, predicting the Republican Senate is something I am not in any way a specialist in, to put it gently. But if anybody goes through easily, it ought to be young. Okay, EJ. The tape is rolling. You've already seen what we do with our tape. We might play it for you again in the future. Look into that crystal ball of yours. What are the likely moves that this administration will succeed in making and which ones will get stalled? I think they will make real progress on COVID because they're going to have a consistent policy. They may get some pushback from some Republican governors, but I think other Republican governors are going to be relieved that they have somebody in the White House who's pushing them to deal with the virus in an intelligent, basically intelligent way. They may luck out because of the vaccine, and they're going to work really hard to make sure that that gets out. And I think they are going to encourage this Congress right now to boost the economy. They'll probably try one more shot at it. And I think the one area where they may have some success is on infrastructure, that thing that Trump kept talking about and didn't talk about. It may not be as green an infrastructure bill as they want. I think they're going to push hard anyway on green stuff. 
I think they're going to push on health care, which they're going to have a lot of trouble getting through a Republican Senate if Georgia goes wrong. I think making a prediction without knowing how Georgia turns out, and this is how I will get myself off the hook for the future tape, is almost impossible because with Democratic control of the Senate, even 50-50, without it, I think they're going to be very limited. But I think he's going to have to lay down some markers, even if they don't have the Senate. I think he is going to have to try to do something on health care, try to do something on college and training access, try to do something on child care, which is a huge issue that's really been brought home by the pandemic. And if the Senate doesn't pass it, he should run against the do-nothing Republican Senate in 2022, just like Harry Truman got reelected running against the do-nothing Republican Congress in 1948. Okay, well, that, that's going to do it for us today. E.J. Dion, thanks for joining us again. How can people follow you? The easiest place to follow me is Twitter at E.J. Dion. Nothing complicated, and I tend to tweet out all my columns, and I also like to tweet out smart things other people write. I tend not to get into Twitter wars with people. Okay. To our listeners, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't have to hunt around for Meet Me in the Middle next week. Thank you to our producer, A.J. Mosley. Mastering is by Steve Rickyberg. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. People, this is a building time. Let's come together with our best ideas, our most cooperative nature, where we don't focus only on our differences, we focus on our common goals. It's a new Meet Me in the Middle attitude. So we can fix our country together. See you next week, everybody. Kirko Media. Media for your mind.